We're in John chapter 4. We're actually going to finish the chapter this morning. And, and Jesus has, is or has moved on from um, Sychar in Samaria. And he goes up to the region of the Galilee, which is north of Samaria. And he settles in going back to the city of Cana, which as we read about in John chapter 2, is uh, the first miracle where he changed the water into wine. So we have a kind of an interesting passage before us, and I'm taking a, a, a rather lengthy, for me anyway, a rather lengthy chunk of Scripture, beginning in verse 43, going all the way to verse 54, because I, I think this, this passage is probably better to, to address as a whole, although we could spend probably more time with it and pull out some various pieces. And there's a lot of things here to observe um, just in this narrative. Beginning in verse 43, it says, and I'm reading out of the New King James this morning just to change things up. And it says, Now after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick in Capernaum. And when Jesus, or excuse me, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. And as he was now going down, because he's going down to Capernaum, which is there on the Sea of uh, Galilee, as he is now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them, the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, his, the fever left him. That would be around one o'clock. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. And this, again, is the second sign Jesus did while he had come out of Judea into Galilee. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding of this passage this morning, that you would instruct us by your Holy Spirit, that you would minister to us these wonderful words of life and help us, Lord, to apply them into our lives and to take these words to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. 
So Jesus leaves Samaria. He'd been with the Samaritans for about two days. And they had believed on him. Notice that there's a pattern here in the, in the story of Jesus at Sychar. When, when Jesus met with the woman at the well and she went back into town and was telling everybody, you've got to come meet this man who told me everything that I've ever done. It said that the, the, the people believed her. They believed. And because of that belief, they came out to see the Messiah. And then, of course, what I, what I love about this is, is that they tell her later on in verse 42, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is Christ the Savior of the world. You have this progression in belief. They believed the woman, but when they heard Jesus speak, they believed even greater. Same idea here where this man believed enough to go from Capernaum to Cana. I don't know how he heard that Jesus was there, but he did. It's about 20 to 25 miles. Now, notice he was a nobleman, which this word in the Greek refers uh, to this idea of somebody of, of royal, uh, either royal lineage or part of the royal government. So he was either a part of Herod Antipas' government there in the Galilee, or he might have been involved uh, somehow with the Roman emperor, uh, although the Romans at that time did not really have a huge presence in the Galilee. They did everywhere else. They did definitely in Jerusalem. They did in Judea. But they did not have a huge presence in the Galilee. Why? Because for one, there wasn't a whole lot of people up there. And there wasn't, um, uh, it, it, it didn't, that region did not bear as much importance as Judea did where you had the big city of Jerusalem. Nonetheless, he was probably from one of these two uh, uh, governments. He may have been from somewhere else. The, the, the Bible doesn't tell us. There's a presumption here that he is a Gentile, and because of that, and that, that's probably true, but because of that presumption, some people think that he is a centurion, that we find in the book of Luke and also in the book of Matthew, who came to Jesus because of a servant that was sick. I think this is a separate story. And I think you have this man who had a son that was sick, and somehow he travels 20 to 25 miles. Now, he might have had a chariot. We don't know. Or he might have done it on foot. Now, nonetheless, that's like going from here down to Deschutes River Woods and either walking or going there on horseback or taking a chariot. It's, it's a long trip. It, it, it would have taken a while. I mean, you could do it in a day if you were really healthy and, and, and were able to keep a very uh, quick pace that is, you know, a slight jog. But that's, that's, that's not quite a marathon, is it? But it's, it's, it's a pretty significant distance. He believed enough to go find Jesus. How in the world did he, did he know that he was in? I ask all these questions, right? How did he even know to begin with that he was in Cana? How did he know how to find him? No, I think Jesus had quite a crowd around him. So Cana was not a very large town. So I think um, it would have been obvious. 
That's the thing I like about Sisters. It's such a small town. I don't need, for the most part, I don't need an address for almost anything. Now, there are times I do, right? But if, if you drive around enough, now, it might take, sometimes it might take me longer than I'm willing to spend as far as time. But if you drive around enough, you'll find something here, right? Normally, that's because that's, it's such a small place. But anyway, he comes to Jesus, and he wants Jesus to come back to Capernaum with him. And, and Jesus' response here to me is fascinating. Because he says to the man, unless you people believe. Notice that people is in italics, but it's probably a good insertion. Because the word you here in the Greek is plural. So he wasn't just talking to that man. But he said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Now, what did this tell us earlier? Verse 45, so when Jesus came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they also had gone to the feast. That was the feast of Passover. All, all the adult males were required to go, uh, bless you, they were required to go to Jerusalem during the Passover. Jesus was there. He did a bunch of miracles. And it was those works and those miracles that Jesus did that prompted Nicodemus, John chapter 3, to come to him at night and say, you must, teacher, you, you must be sent from God. Can No one can do the works that you do unless God is with him. So the signs and the wonders, signs of the things of the miracles, the things that are performed, that point towards something else. Wonders, for the most part, are the responses of the people due to the signs. And Jesus tells them, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Now, if we look back into this chapter, how many signs and wonders did Jesus do in Samaria? Perhaps one. Yeah, one. With the conversation with the woman at the well because he had a word of knowledge. And he said to her, you, you haven't been married once, married five times. The guy you're li living with now isn't even your husband, right? He was given this word of knowledge. Or I should say he possessed it. But he didn't do the signs and wonders in Samaria that he was doing in Jerusalem, that he had done earlier in Cana when he turned the water into wine. And this is almost a contradictory statement, and I kind of glossed over it. I actually completely ignored it. Um, so I'll go back to it. Because it says that Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And so when he came to the Galilee, the Galileans received him. Doesn't that sound odd? To me, it read very odd. I, I, I was 
I, th I found it interesting how many different commentators wanted to take a different take on these two verses because they, they are, they're paradoxical. They're in conflict with each other. Jesus had no honor. Jesus testified that he had no honor. A prophet has no honor except in his own country. He, he talked about this in, in, in Matthew and in Luke also, but the context was a little different. The wording is actually even different. John is giving us a kind of a, a, a paraphrase of what Jesus had testified to. The Galileans received him because they had seen the things that he had did in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. They had seen the miracles. They were drawn by the miracles. They saw it, so they began to believe it. What's interesting is that, that I, read, I read in verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. I read that as, as really kind of a mild rebuke. See, the Galileans, those in Cana, and no doubt somebody might have put two and two together at the wedding feast, chapter 2, where the water was turned to wine. Somebody might have put two and two together and said, you know that, 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 that guy from Nazareth? His mom said, hey, we're out of wine. Next thing you know, that the wine is flowing, and it was the best wine of the entire wedding. They believed, but they wanted to see more. Ever amuse a toddler and you do all kinds of weird and crazy things that I definitely will not do in front of you right now? And they laugh and they laugh. And once they get done laughing, what do they say? Do it again. And after about, you fill in the blank based on how much patience you have. After about the 11th time, you want to strangle the kid, right? But what fascinates me is that in the context of this, Jesus does the miracle. In the context of what I'm reading as a mild or a slight rebuke, Jesus does the miracle anyway. See, that gets my attention. And as I think about how this gospel is, has been put together, I think that probably the most important part <laughs> even of this passage is to go back in the gospel and allow what has already been written in this gospel to speak into this context. And I'm probably going to use this. More. I've done it already once, and you'll, you'll understand in a moment what I'm getting at. In, in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, 
and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Okay, we, we, we've covered that passage. So we're going to do it again. Well, kind of. I would submit to you that the entirety of the Gospel of John is intended to be read within the context of those few verses that I just read to you. What I find fascinating, it's called the prologue, and I didn't read the entire prologue, but what I find fascinating about, I, I just love John 1. But what's fascinating, among other things, is there anything in John 1 that proves any of that? Is there anything in John 1 that proves what I just read to you, those first five verses? I don't see anything. I don't see any demonstration a little bit later in John 1. I don't see a mathematical formula. I don't see any type of description of how we are to know that what John has declared, what John has written, what God himself has declared about himself is in fact true. So how do I know it's true? Let's even put the idea that this is inspired scripture just, just slightly to the side for a moment. How do I know it's true? See, I believed this all my life. I grew up in church. That poor church. Anyway. But I, I, was, I was taught this at a very early age. Some of you were as well. There was something about this. There is something about this that I think Psalm 40, verse 7, excuse me, Psalm 42, verse 7, talks about where deep calls out to deep. I read this, and there's something in the very depth of me that says this is true. That something within the very depth of me is what I often refer to you guys because some, sometimes I thought some of you were starting to wonder if I was hearing things. But that, very, that, that, that which is in the very depth of me and that which I hope is in the very depth of you is the voice of God speaking into your heart, the voice of God speaking into your soul, the voice of God speaking into your conscience. I read this. And to me, it's as clear as as clear as clear can be. And what, you can make this into something else, and, and that to me, that, that, that's some type of reasoning and mental gymnastics to try to make this say something than what, to me, what it clearly says. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a claim to deity. And I go forth into the rest of this gospel reading all these incredible stories which really happened through the lens of those first five verses. Because I believe what John is intending to do 
in this gospel. Now, he doesn't really say it, but the way he writes his gospel says it to me very loudly and very clearly. If you believe, then you will see. The reality is, particularly in modern thinking, if we see, then we'll believe. I think that's what Jesus is really talking about here in, in, here in this back part of John chapter 4, that, that unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll by no means believe. Now, in the end, they still believe. Okay, because I don't, I don't know of any of us that our belief, and what's another word for belief? Faith. Someone said faith, right? Said faith. Thanks, Thanks Larry. Uh, that our faith is pure, that our faith is, is, is not tainted with us a little bit. I don't think there's a purity to my own faith, and yet it's the best I can give God. I'm reading here in John 4, and I'm looking at this nobleman who says, you've got to come down with me. Sir, come down before my child dies, verse 49. Now, Jesus is here in this town, and this nobleman wants to scoop him up and take him all the way down 25 miles away. Kind of interrupting the program a little bit. Doesn't it sound like that? Unless you people believe, uh, see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And so Jesus says to him, go your way. Your, 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 your son lives. That word go in the Greek is in the imperative. The verb. It's in the imperative, which means it's a command. It's not a suggestion. Jesus commanded the nobleman. Jesus commanded the, the royal official to go his way. And, and this fascinates me too because when I think of, I thought about this this morning is, you know, those who followed Jesus on his earthly ministry, it was more, you know it was more than just the 12, right? There were a lot of women that were accompanying Jesus and, and, and followed him. Where did the 70 come from that he sent out two by two unless they were following him? So at one point, Jesus might have had a fairly significant-looking, sizable group of people that were following him. But also, I think it's in Mark 7, with the man who was the maniac, the demon-possessed maniac, whom Jesus healed, and, and he wanted to go with Jesus. He wanted to get in the boat and go across uh, the Sea of Galilee and follow Jesus. And what did Jesus tell him? No. Go into the towns surrounding the area that known as the Decapolis. Go into the towns and tell them what God has done for you. And the guy did it. He is actually the first, really, of the first guy who was sent in 
Small, remember when we talked, in, uh, ex, uh, when we went through the book of Ephesians, small a, apostolic ministry. This guy sent him out, and he went out and preached and told everybody what God had done for him. We don't even know his name. But it tells us that the man believed, and he obeyed Jesus, and he went his way. Now, 20 to 25 miles. We don't know how, what time of day this took place. But if you read the narrative, with the, with, and when the man is going back down to Capernaum, he runs into his servants, and the servants tell him, verse 51, your son lives. And so he inquired of them when, when the son got better, and they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. See, that fascinates me as well because that speaks somewhat about this man's belief. I would imagine that with the son being so sick that once he found out that Jesus was in Cana that he left and made haste to get there. Now it's the next day and he's still not home. Why did he take so long? Or did he take long? Did he take a longer time? Did he make a side trip? Did he go by Walmart? You know, whatever the case may be. Is it possible that he believed and had confidence in the Lord's word to such a way that he didn't feel like he had to beat feet and get home right away? It's very possible. The scripture doesn't say that, but why in the world do we have this story uh, uh, given to us in the way that it's given to us? Why, why, do we, why are we even told about the servants meeting him, coming to meet him and say, by the way, your son lives. When did it happen? Oh, about one o'clock yesterday. And it says, he himself believed. Now, it's the same Greek word. Same Greek words, same Greek grammatical structure. But he believed in his whole household. He believed and his whole household believed as well. I think of the Philippian jailer who, who um, uh, was about to kill himself when Paul and Silas were, in, uh, were released from prison because of the earthquake and everything that happened and and the, 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 the Philippian jailer thought that everybody had escaped. And he, uh, as it was when you were a jailer, if, if the people that you were in charge of and, and be given charge to guard over, if they escaped from jail, uh, you might have to pay their penalty. So he was attempting to, about ready to kill, kill himself, thinking that he was going to have to pay that penalty. And, and, and Paul cries out to him and says, don't, don't, don't harm yourself, we're still here. And the guy, the jailer, takes Paul and Silas home and takes care of their bruises and their, their cuts and everything that, their, that had happened to them because they were beaten. And he and his whole household was saved. It was a belief that this man had that he brought it into the world in which he lived. I think that's what's so important here. Just like the man who was the maniac that I talk about, again, Mark 7. He had such a firm belief that he brought it into his world. 
the woman at the well who had such a firm belief in this encounter she had. And, and even in the, in the way the text is written in John 4, it, 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 it leaves some room for speculation about whether she was really completely convinced enough, uh, enough or not. But nonetheless, she was convinced enough where she left her pot at the well and she brought the word of the Messiah, the message of the Messiah, into her world, into Sychar. And the whole town comes out to see Jesus. And he stays with them for two days. Which is really interesting to me, because in strict Jewish thinking, he would have been ceremonially unclean, hanging out with the Samaritans for that long. But the Galileans, for the most part, did not hold as strict of an understanding of Torah as, let's say, the Pharisees, who mainly hovered around Judea and Jerusalem. The woman believes, the man believes, the families believe. And they take the message of Jesus into the world in which they live. Again, going back to John 1, 1, 1 through 5. There's no empirical truth. There's no scientific evidence. but it is a firm, solid, and sound declaration of who Jesus is. Sometimes I think we spend too much time trying to dress Jesus up so that he's relevant. into today's culture. But when I read what John says, and my spirit bears witness with his spirit, so that tells me that the Holy Spirit can cut through all that relevant nonsense. If we just let him. I, I'm not saying that you shouldn't try to be relevant. I'm a big believer in if someone goes overseas to be a missionary, and that's that 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 term has a is a very floating scale these days, but I won't I won't go off on that. But I have I'm a big believer if you if someone goes overseas to go preach the gospel, to go be the light and salt in another culture, another country. They should learn the language. They should learn the culture. They should understand who it is they're getting themselves involved with. I think that's really important. I think when we, we, we deal with people from other cultures, and we do hear more often than we think 
There's so many different cultures in this area. I don't know if you ever realized it. You have people who've lived here forever. You have people who wish they've lived here forever, right? People from the Valley, people from Washington, people from California, people from back east, people from the Rockies. You know, and they're all different. And yes, we need to relate to them and speak to them and communicate with them in such a way that they understand. But at the same time, recognize that conversion is not about how well we present Jesus, but conversion is about how deeply the Holy Spirit penetrates into the heart of an individual and then their willingness to say yes and to follow Jesus. God's grace is put out here for us and then we respond. I think the response is important. That's where I would vary with some reform theologies on this. I think the response is important and necessary. But we see this even in this, in this, in this pattern. We see this even in this narrative that God gives his grace by going into Cana yet again. Now, sum this up. And this is where I got to be careful. This is where you got to be careful. Do you want to see to believe or do you want to see to, or do you want to believe to see? Some of you are thinking, well, what are you? I almost said it wrong, too, by the way. It again. Or again. Do you want to believe to see? Or do you need to see to believe? How's that? That a little better. Well, sometimes, I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes I need to see to believe. All right. Sometimes things are just beyond me. And I don't always get it the first time. But that's okay because neither do any of you. How's that? All right? <laughs> At least I don't think you do. All right? Notice that Jesus still imparted the grace of healing that kid healing that man's son. Even though he had said, well, unless you people see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. You'll by no means believe. How do I say this without it almost sounding sacrilegious? It is like the grace of God submitted to that man's and those people's lack of faith so that he might draw them in. And I, I, I think once we get into heaven, we're going to recognize that God was so much more faithful than we even understood. I know that he's faithful. I tell you guys this all the time, how faithfully. I pray this all the time to you guys, how faithful he is. I don't even know that I really understand 
how faithful he truly is in my own life and in the lives of yours. Much more so than we can imagine. But what type of a relationship do you, do you want with God? Now, like I said, this is where the ice becomes very thin because I've had so many people tell me that they get the still, small voice. And it's nonsense. I had a couple of young guys come to the door. They were so much fun. Um, they even gave me a Book of Mormon because I asked them for it because I didn't have one. So I wanted to, I wanted to read it. Um, no, I'm not converting. <sighs> but I knew as much about Mormon theology as they did. That's what made it even more fun. Then I let it slip that I have a couple of seminary degrees and they didn't know what to do with me. But anyway, um, this idea, it was fun. <laughs> this idea of the burning in the bosom, you know what I'm talking about? You ever heard that phrase? You, you read something, you, and the Mormons will say you get this burning in the bosom. And that might have been their mother's enchilada the night before, okay? But I've had people tell me that they, 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 they get these impulses. Not Test every spirit to know that it is from God or not, including those impulses. Don't think that the enemy cannot whisper into the ear of your heart. Because they can. Test everything, Paul said, and you hold fast to that which is good. Well, how do you test everything? How do you test everything? I've, I've had people come up with the craziest ideas that they believe that, they, they, that God revealed them to them. Well, if, first of all, if it's not in Scripture, then guess who's wrong, all right? If it's not according to the tradition of how the church has interpreted the Scripture all these years, then it's probably not right either. And how do you reason through these things? How do you, I just went, and how do you experience these things? they match up with the creeds which are written based on biblical understanding of who God is that's why we do the Nicene or the Apostles Creed we don't do Nicene's Creed much longer but that's why we do the Apostles Creed I believe in God the Father mighty almighty maker of heaven heaven and earth that's right out of Genesis 1 So we have to test all things and hold fast to those things which are good. But do you want the relationship with God that he speaks to you, he speaks to your heart, he speaks to your spirit, deep calls out to deep, I hear it from God, I believe it, therefore I'm able to see it? Or do I need to see the miracles? Do I need to see the signs and wonder about them? Wish I had another 20 minutes, but I probably shouldn't go there anyway and talk about talking about signs and wonders. 
I will say one thing, and then we'll close. I don't think we're called to pursue the signs and wonders. I think we're called to pursue the still small voice. Now, there's a couple of churches even in this town, they're going to probably very much disagree with me. And I can think of all kinds of churches and all kinds of places, and they're packing people uh, um, in, in their sanctuaries as much as they possibly can, and they're going to disagree with that. And they're all about the signs and the wonders. But I don't see here that Jesus is all about that. I see him almost slightly, I don't know what word to use, perturbed? Slightly irritated is not right but slightly kind of pushed out because unless you see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. God is calling us into a more fuller form of belief, a fuller form of faith. Now, I, I like the signs and wonders, to be honest with you. And I've had them sneak up on me. And I've even had them to where I'm like, this is going to happen. This is not going to happen. This is not going to happen. This is not going to happen. Sure enough, it happened. And I know that miracles still happen. Healings still happen. Signs are still given. Often, and I, I, was inter <laughs> I had a guy interview me on this not too long ago for one of his papers, and he's probably going to make me look like a heretic, but that's okay. But I said that often that these miraculous work of God is beyond our understanding. But it accompanied with that, and I know this is very thin ice, guys. Accompanied with that is this understanding that deep, still calls out to deep and the spirit of God confirming what just happened in front of me. Or as an old friend of mine way back in the Jesus movement said to me one time, all I'm going to tell you guys is you had to be there. And he just left it at that. So I gave you both sides of the coin, flip it any way, you, any way which that you will. How's that? But the reality is, guys, and I'll close. The wind blows where it wills. You cannot tell where it is coming from, nor where it is going. So was everyone who was born of the Spirit. Jesus told us that in John 3.